Loved ones, I invite you to now to turn in your Bibles to the Scripture passage we will consider today from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 14. As we make our way through Ephesians, I remind you where we are, what we considered last week. We considered how the church is God's exile people in this world. As pilgrims in a weary land, and united to Christ by faith, we are bound for our everlasting, eternal homeland, which is the new creation. And Paul showed us last week how this reality about where we are headed together should change the way that we relate to one another in the church. We are a society of the redeemed, and we must uphold the truth that unites us, work to uphold one another, and let our faith work towards love. And these are the characteristics of that new self that fits with our God who is love and his land of love to which we are headed. And so as we approach our passage today, we find that the Apostle Paul now focuses on how we should relate not only to one another, but to the, to the society that we dwell in, that surrounds us, how we must conduct our lives differently from our neighbors. And so with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word here from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 14. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, may the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it now as we consider it and meditate upon it together. As we think back on our earliest days in our childhood, when we were children, we learn the basics of life. We learn the basic lessons of what is up and what is down, our right hand from our left hand, light from darkness, right from wrong, boy, girl, acceptance, and rejection. Well, these are as basic and primal lessons that we all should have the basis in some sense of society and culture. But as we know, the culture that we live in has turned everything 
topsy-turvy, upside down. It's not only our moral ethic as a culture. We see more and more the twisting of truth into fiction and fantasy in reality all around us. And it's true that we live in very confusing and troubling times. Our culture is kind of like a planet, if you can imagine this, a planet that suddenly gets dislodged from its orbit and is now drifting out into the darkness of chaos, into outer space. That is where our culture is heading, with no anchor, nothing to hold us firm and stable. And by saying this, I'm not trying to point the finger at the culture around us. I'm trying to bring to light the reality of the world that you and I live in on a daily basis, the world that we engage in hourly through technology, through a variety of means and measures. In a way, the darkness that rests in our pockets, on our smartphones, it is just a finger swipe away. This is what we live in. This is what is ever before us. And Paul is assuming here that the church is a people set apart from the world in these ways. He assumes that by faith in Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God has remade us, rebirthed us, or the technical theological word, regenerated us. And when he did that, he, in a sense, programmed us with a new destination point in our heart, a GPS point, we could say, in our heart. The new creation to which we are headed, to which the Spirit is driving us. And therefore, even though we still live here in this world, we must not live as if we belong to this world. Because, as Jesus said, we do not ultimately belong here. He said, we are in the world, but we are not of this world now that we belong to Christ by faith. And here in this passage, Paul shows us what is suitable conduct as Christians, suitable conduct that is fitting to our new identity in Christ. He also issues for us a sure warning against those whose conduct does not align with Christ in his way. And lastly, he calls us to come under the shining grace of God in Christ. And those will be our three points, the suitable conduct, the sure warning, and the shining grace. So first, that suitable conduct. If you look again at the passage in verse 3, Paul says that there must not even be a hint of certain things in the church, in the life of believers. In the original Greek, Literally, he says that there must not be these things named among us. They must not be named among us. It must not fit with, it must not be part of our reputation in a sense. That is, no one should be able to say that the people of Ontario URC condone or accept or practice such things that he lists here. And what are these things that must not be named among us? Well, he lists them. Sexual immorality, all kinds of impurity, covetousness, which can also be translated greediness. And this is a very general, broad list before us. They carry broad meanings. Let's examine each one in turn. First, sexual immorality. This covers a whole host of acts, including things such as adultery, prostitution, fornication, homosexuality, and pornography. 
This broad term refers to every improper use of sex, you know, taking what is holy, sex, meant to be designed for the holy matrimony between a man and a woman in marriage, and taking it out of that beautiful context and profaning it, twisting it. Such immorality, Paul says, must not be condoned, accepted, or practiced among us or by us. Now, all impurity. Impurity, here, refers to any sort of filth or uncleanliness or vileness. The same word for impurity is found in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, which gives a list there. It says, six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that makes haste to run to evil, and a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Loved ones, such filthiness must not be condoned or practiced by us. And thirdly, he mentions covetousness, which refers to greed, greed or avarice, those insatiable desires for that which does not belong to you. More money, more power, more material things. Such greed, Paul says, must not be condoned or practiced by us. Now at the end of verse 3, Paul gives his rationale for saying all of this by saying, because these are improper for God's holy people. Improper. What does he mean by this? Such deep-rooted sins, they mark the world around us, but they are not fitting to who we are now in Christ by faith. They are not becoming to our new identity as holy ones in God. Such actions and practices, we could say, are in a sense sacrilegious because they do not match the weightiness or the glory of who we are now in Jesus. And what are we? What are you, Christian? Well, we've already seen in Ephesians, you are a holy temple of the living God. The very spirit of your creator, the spirit of God dwells inside you. You are a renewed image of God. You are a little Christ, a follower of Jesus, bearing his name. And therefore, such actions are not fitting to who you are now in him. Your conduct in life must be suitable to who you are in Jesus by faith. Now, to illustrate this, I'm a bit embarrassed to mention this, even. Uh, and I'm sure I could find a picture of it. But back in the 90s, when I was a young boy, I wore ridiculous baggy pants. Maybe you remember that trend that was popular among uh, the youth, these really big, baggy pants that somehow became popular. They looked absolutely hideous. I don't know how my parents allowed me to wear them. Why did they look hideous? Because they were not at all fitting or becoming to my identity, to my form, my body even. And this is a fitting illustration because if you claim to be Christian but you are living in sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, well, that is what you look like. Like you have these baggy, improper, unbecoming, unfitting 
characteristics and habits about you that do not match with who you are in Jesus by faith. It's not becoming, not suitable. As we continue on, look at verse 4, where Paul adds to the list of what is improper. By addressing our speech, what comes out of our mouths, he says, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are not which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So just as our actions, just as our habits, our desires of our heart, also our speech should reflect our new identity. It should evidence a change in our hearts, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit there within who dwells. As our Lord Jesus himself said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. And so our lips should be a wellspring of bubbling purity and thankfulness, edifying speech, giving grace to those who hear, building them up. But far too often, we are careless with our speech. And here, God's word is clear. Foul language and crude joking are inconsistent with our holy identity in Christ, inappropriate for God's holy presence. For he dwells within us. And so, loved ones, with these things we've looked at in the opening of this passage, we see that there is a suitable conduct that we must live in and in accordance with. There are practices, desires, and speech that is not becoming to who we are in Christ as God's holy people. And we must shed those things, depart from those things, disassociate from those old ways. And this leads us now to our second point. The sure warning from this passage. And we see that in verses 5 through 6, where Paul issues a sure warning for us. Let's read it again. He says this, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or in Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now first, let us note here at the beginning that this warning is given to the church by the Apostle Paul. The church in Ephesus, he's writing. This is not simply a warning to the world. And how is it that Paul feels the need to say this to the church? It is because of this. It's because of our understanding of what the church is. Because the church, the visible church, is always a mixed community in this world. In every true church, we can expect a mixture of true believers and those who are unbelievers. Or using metaphors that we find in Scripture by Jesus, you will always find chaff and weeds among the wheat. You will always find goats among the sheep. In other words, we can know that not every member and visitor of the visible church is in fact a genuine believer or truly elect of God. And that's why we find these important warnings issued in the New Testament to the covenant community, which is the church, lest 
the unbelievers who find themselves attending regularly in the midst of the congregation get too comfortable with a false assurance of their own salvation. And sadly, sadly, many preachers soften the weightiness of these warnings. They sugarcoat the weightiness of what is being presented by the Apostle Paul. And this is, in fact, a danger that has always been present for those who have been called to preach God's Word to His people. For example, we find this in the Old Testament in a clear passage in Jeremiah 6, where it says this, the Lord speaking to His people, To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. From the least to the greatest, or the youngest to the oldest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Wow. Well, here's the danger. The danger is telling individuals that they are at peace with God when in reality, all the evidence in their life indicates that they are not at peace with God. This is just as bad as a doctor who scans a patient for cancer, and on that scan, he sees it clearly for what it is, a cancer that is malignant, and it will bring a fatal end to his patient if not treated. And then he turns to his patient and tells him, all is well, go home, you're clear. As comforting as that might sound to the patient, it would be empty words damning that patient to an early death by cancer. And so... Paul here is that honest and loving doctor saying this to us from the text. Make no doubt about it. This is sure. If you live in habitual, unrepentant sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, well, the cancer of darkness still controls your heart. And after looking at the scan of your lifestyle, it is evident that you are not a child of God. And therefore, unless you begin treatment now with the grace of God, you will die under God's wrath. This is the sure warning that we hear from the text. And I hear the objections in your heart as they arose in mine as I studied the passage. You think I'm perhaps undermining the grace of God. Trust me, I am not. This is what Paul is clearly teaching here. And this is also classic Reformed theology that we hold to in our church. For example, question and answer 87 of our Heidelberg Catechism asks this, Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. Ah, but you object again in your heart, saying, but aren't we sinners saved by grace apart from our works? Yes, we are. That is true. 
But Paul said earlier in chapter 2 is clear and still stands. He is not contradicting himself here in chapter 5. He has not changed his mind. But we must realize that God always sanctifies those whom he justifies. When the Holy Spirit gives that saving faith and justifies a sinner by faith alone in Christ alone, by the works of Christ in him alone, well, that faith that the Holy Spirit puts within always in time produces the fruit of holiness, righteousness, and truth. Always. No exceptions. In our Belgic Confession, Article 24 says this, It is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love which leads a man to do of himself the works that God has commanded in his word. Now you may object again, saying, but I am imperfect, and I daily struggle with sin. And yes, that is true of both you and of me. But Paul is not saying here that a true believer lives a life of perfection. No, there will always be a struggle with sin, but there will always also be a small but real beginning of obedience in the life of true believers. And again, this is attested for us in Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 114, where it says, can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? The answer is no. In this life, even the holiest people have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, but all of God's commandments. You see, this is clear, biblical, and reformed theology. This sure warning comes to us today. Hear the warning. And with all seriousness, loved ones, friends, make a break with sinful habits. As Paul says here, do not join in those who practice such things. Do not be partners with them in such ways. For you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. So live as children of light. You have a new identity in Christ. Now, in verses 9 through 10, Paul says that this light should mark us and define us, not the darkness. And true believers, again, true believers have a small but real beginning of that goodness, righteousness, and truth, and they seek to please the Lord all the days of their life. And if this is not you, if you are comfortable in your sinful ways and habits, well, don't be fooled by empty words of false assurance and cheap grace. In his famous and insightful book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. 
let us not fall prey to cheap grace. Just because someone tells you peace, peace, does not mean that you indeed have peace with God. And so hear that sure warning from the text. We have heard about the suitable conduct. We've heard the sure warning. Now let us come to our third point, the shining grace of Christ. Now throughout this passage, Paul has been shining, in a sense, a spotlight on the darkness of this present evil age and the darkness in human hearts. And what's his goal? What's his objective? He wants us to come out of the darkness and come under the light of Christ, the shining grace of God. In verse 13, Paul says that everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light. And this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Here we find good news for us. Good news that if you expose your darkness to the light of God by confession of your sin, acknowledging that you are in need of Christ's merits, in need of Christ's blood to atone for your sin, then God's grace will make you light. That is the promise. You see, this light of Christ, it is not only a judging light, The point is not to expose you and shame you under the fullness of the light, to shame you for your sin and condemn you. No, that is not the purpose. No, Jesus wants your sin to come to the light of day in order to cover your sin. He wants to bring out the darkness in order to make you light. God doesn't delight in exposing sin. No, He delights in forgiving sin, in cleansing sin, in remaking us. But God only does that after first exposing our sin to the light of His grace. Like we sang earlier in Psalm 32, unconfessed sin that's lodged in the heart and left In the darkness, in the secret, it eats away at the soul of a person. And so we must acknowledge our sin and come to the light to be renewed and remade by His grace. And I know this is a scary thing to confess our sin, to expose it, to bring it to the light. Why? Why are we afraid to come to the light, to confess our sins out loud to others and to God? It's because we are afraid that once others see who we really are, who we truly are, that they will not love us anymore. But let me remind you how Jesus responded to sinners who came to the light. In the Gospel accounts, we read about a woman who was called a sinner, a great sinner, probably a prostitute in her day. And she came to Jesus at a dinner party the house of a religious elite person, a Pharisee. And she came in order to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears. The Pharisees, they were shocked that Jesus would allow such a sinner to touch him. But Jesus was glad that she came to him in the light of day. There, in front of Jesus at his feet, exposed to the eyes of all the religious elite who were looking at her and Jesus for all to see 
there's sin before everyone. Jesus loved her and said to her, your sins are forgiven. Friends, we've heard the sure warning. Now hear the sure gospel that when you come to Jesus by faith, confessing your sin and seeking His grace, He will not turn away from you. He will embrace you with love. He will take you in and He will make you feel whole again. He will forgive you all your sins just as He did with that woman. And so wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And His love and grace will make you radiant with joy. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with the Deckers, uh, Julie Decker in particular, about how short the daylight is in Alaska during winters. And on the shortest days of the year, Alaskans get less than six hours of sunlight. Can you imagine that? Such short days, such darkness. And that seasonal shortage of natural light exposure produces for many what is called SAD, which is an acronym for Seasonal Affective Disorder. It's a type of depression that sets in for people during the fall and winter months. And why? Why does that happen? Well, it's because it seems that God made humans to live and experience more natural light than six hours a day. We were made to live in the light, and we need the light. How do Alaskans survive this natural, uh, how do they survive without this natural light? Well, during the winter months, there is a natural light therapy, these boxes that are called sad lights that produce 10,000 lux of light, which triggers in the mind the production of serotonin in the brain, which is related to well-being and happiness. And people find relief from this exposure to the light in the midst of those dark winters, in the midst of darkness. And so, friends, you might be in love with the darkness in the world right now. You might be following your desires without a care for the light of God's Word. But listen, you were not made to live in the darkness. The darkness is killing you softly and slowly. And your autonomous way of life and rebellion against your Creator will ultimately depress you. It will press you down by force and conquer you in the end. So come out of the darkness. Expose yourself to the light of Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void until God said, let there be light. And he made the stars in the heavens above to give light on earth and to separate the darkness from the light. And in Christ, God has called you light, Christian. And he now sends you out into the world to give light to the darkness around us, like the moon at night that gives light to this world by reflecting the brilliance of the sun. So we are to, in the midst of this dark world, give light to those around us, reflecting the brilliant glory and grace of Christ, the Son of God. Let us live, therefore, as luminaries of His love and grace. Amen.
Father God, we are deeply challenged by this text, but also it is my prayer that as we've considered the shining grace of Christ, that we are deeply comforted as well. For indeed, Christ came to save sinners such as us. Lord, if there are any who are comfortable in their sins and dwelling in the darkness without a care for the way they live, convict them, wake them up, raise them from their spiritual death, and shine your grace upon them even now. For those that you have already called your light, that you have exposed, and those of us you have given saving faith to, we ask that you would continue by your grace to move us towards repentance and faith, that we too would reflect the glory of Christ in this world and shine as lights in the midst of darkness, giving hope to those around us in Christ and in him alone. Make this a reality for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.